The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good evening. We are continuing our study in Reformation theology. I would invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We are going to be all over the Bible tonight. It's going to be uh, a capital community church sword drill. But you don't have to turn to every scripture. You can jot them down. But this is a topical study. So we're going to be looking at a topic, and we're going to be looking at it just on what the Bible says about it. So we're going to have a lot of different verses that we're going to talk about as we return to Reformation theology. And before we begin, let me pray for our time. Heavenly Father, we come to the throne of grace. Lord, we pray that your word would enlighten our hearts, enlighten our minds, and Lord, may we submit to what the word of God says, even if it surprises us. Even if it's something that, that might be different than what we were taught before, Lord, may, our, may we endeavor to always hold the Word of God over our thinking and our affections and over our will. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what I'm going to talk about tonight really was a Copernican revolution for me when I understood it. It changed how I thought about Christianity and it changes how I think about ministry today. It changes how I think about preaching. It changes how I think about evangelism. It changes how I think about salvation. So what we're talking about is very important. And this theology is, as we've been talking about, comes out of the Reformation. And if you remember, as we've talked you go back and listen to the tapes or the, the internet now, but you go back and listen to the internet. Uh, we've been talking about what Roman Catholic theology teaches. And we've been contrasting that with what the Protestant reformers taught and what the Bible teaches. And what Roman Catholicism teaches, one, is that you are born again in the waters of baptism. That you're born again in the waters of baptism. But what they teach then is that salvation is a cooperative effort where God does his part and you do your part. That God provides grace, but you provide works. And we've, we've gone through this again and again, how in the final analysis in Roman theology, you are justified by faith and works. Christ does, did his part, you do your part. And you remember the reformers came along and, and the, the rally cry of the Reformation was solus Christus, Christ alone, sola gratia, grace alone, sola fide, faith alone. What the reformers meant, though, as we talked about sola gratia, is that salvation is entirely, 
100%, that's the, that's the alone part, right? Is entirely a work of God's grace. Entirely a work of God's grace. And what they said, and you can go read Calvin, and Luther wrote a book on this called The Bondage of the Will, is they said that salvation is not just the offer of the gospel. It's the ability to receive the offer. It is the grace-infused ability in the soul to accept the truth of the gospel. And therefore, salvation is of grace. Even the faith that you have is produced by grace. Let me read now Ephesians 2 verse 8. Are you there? Look at this. Paul spells it out so clearly. For by grace, charis is the Greek word, means a gift. For by a gift you have been saved through faith. And look at this. And this is not your own doing. What's not your own doing? All of it. The offer of the gift and the faith. It refers to the whole thing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. What Paul is saying there is that Let's say, hypothetically, you and your friend go to an evangelistic event, and the gospel is preached, and the offer to repent and believe is given. Let's say that you respond, but your friend does not. You walk away, you have that car, awkward car ride home, and you're having that conversation about how you responded to the gospel, and they're saying, well, I just don't buy it. I just don't believe it. What Paul is saying here is that you can't point to yourself and say, well, I'm just smarter. I'm just more spiritual. I'm just more attuned to what the Bible says. You can't do that. Because what Paul is saying is, no, no, the difference between you and your friend is none of those things. The difference is grace. That God gave you grace when he hasn't yet given that person grace. And that's why you responded and that person didn't. It's because of God's grace. And what does that mean for you? Does that, does that make you prideful? No, makes you humble. Wow. It, it's only by his efficacious grace, but the reason why I believed. And so tonight, we are going to talk about what's called irresistible grace. Irresistible grace, and this whiteboard is put way back there. Let me bring it out here so you can see. Irresistible My spelling abilities are being put to the test. Irresistible grace. Okay, now, do people resist the grace of God? Yes, they do. All the time, people resist the grace of God. And I'm, I'm gonna read y'all verses later, but the one that comes immediately to mind is Acts chapter seven. You remember Stephen gives his, his speech to all the Pharisees, and then at the very end, he says, you stiff-necked people, who always resist the Holy Spirit. You always resist the Holy Spirit. 
I've encountered so many people in, 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 in my work as a pastor and evangelist who resist the grace of God. You present the gospel, you lay it out, and they say, you know what? I don't want anything to do with that. I, I have no desire to, to accept the truth. So sometimes when, when we talk about irresistible grace, people say, yeah, but don't people resist God's grace all the time? And yes, they do. And there's a thing called common grace. And common grace is just the general grace that God gives. In fact, you are experiencing common grace because you you're, you're in America. And America still to this day, even though it's a dark country, is more influenced by Christianity than, Christianity than almost any other country. That is a common grace that God is giving to, to, to many, many people. And many, many people resist that grace. But here's what irresistible grace means. Irresistible grace means that at any point, God the Holy Spirit can overcome your resistance. You remember Paul in Acts chapter nine, Saul of Tarsus. He is, at the beginning, he is breathing threats against the church. He hates what Christianity is doing to Judaism. He gets on his horse and going to Damascus. And what does Jesus Christ do? Bam! Grace overcomes his resistance. By Acts chapter 10, what is Paul? He's a Christian. He's a Christian. Jonah is another example. You know, I want you to go to Nineveh. What does Jonah do? Goes to, get his, goes to Joppa, gets on a boat to sail to Tarshish, and then, bam, storm. God overcame his resistance. So what irresistible grace is saying, it's not saying that people can't resist God's grace. It's just saying that when and if God desires, he overcomes that resistance. And he does this all the time. And that's why salvation is a supernatural work of divine grace. We praise his grace. We praise his name because it's something that he does. Now, there was a controversy about this in the early 17th century. So we're talking about the 1600s. So this is, you know, just for a time stamp, this is about 100 years after the Reformation. And Reformation doctrine, you remember, before the Reformation, all of Europe was under what type of teaching? Roman Catholicism, right? So the Reformation happens in, in Germany and then in, in the cantons of Switzerland and then in France, a young guy named uh, Jean Calvin was converted and he hightails it to, to Switzerland. And then in England, you have, um, you have Cranmer and you have Tyndale and you have others, and in Scotland you have John Knox, and there's this Reformation that bubbles up. And this Reformation spills over into countries all over Europe, including the Netherlands. So the, 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 the low country is what, what they call the Netherlands, and, and the Netherlands accepted the Reformation theology. And all goes well for about a hundred years until a guy by the name of Jacob Arminius comes along. And Arminius began to question a lot of the tenets of the Reformation. He, he began to say, you know, I, I hear what y'all are saying about salvation being all of grace, 
but surely man has to reserve some credit, some part of this, that, that maybe man isn't as bad off as the reformers initially said, that maybe there's some mediating position that we can come to where man still has in his capacity the ability to, to choose one way or the other. So Arminius also said, therefore, if man can choose up front to be a Christian, then man can choose not to be a Christian. You see the logic there? If man reserves the right to get in, man also reserves the right to get out. And therefore, you can lose salvation. You can lose grace. So this was a big deal. And it caused a a large disturbance in the Netherlands, and a synod was called. And this is in November 1618. And this synod met for almost a year until May of 1619. And what they produced is called the Canons of Dort. The Canons of Dort. And the Canons of Dort, unfortunately, uh, have, been, have been come down to us and, and they're known as the five points of Calvinism. And I say unfortunately because really this is simply biblical theology. Calvin didn't invent this. Um, but people called it the five points of Calvin because Calvin taught it and Augustine before him taught it and Aquinas before Calvin and you know so many other people have, have taught the realities of God's sovereignty and God's irresistible grace. But Calvin was the most prominent figure at that point in history, so it, it became associated with him. But I think it's simply biblical theology. But here's, here's the key here. Here's where I'm going with this. Is at the canons of Dort, and I'll just... They responded to Arminius and his followers with five categories or five heads of doctrine. And these have come to be known as what? Tulip. Tulip. T-U-L-I-P. Tulip. If you hear anybody talk about in theology about tulip, this is what they're talking about. And I'm going to write these down for you. Tulip is an acrostic. So you have the T the U, the L, the I, and the P. All right, so T stands for total depravity. The U stands for unconditional election. The L stands for limited 
atonement, which is, a, I think, a misleading nomer. Um, I prefer particular redemption. So I'm going to put a dash here and put particular redemption. The I stands for irresistible grace, which I've already spelled out for you, so I'm not going to attempt it again. And then the P stands for perseverance. Perseverance of the saints. And that means that those saints who are saved will continue to the end and are eternally secure. Once saved, always saved. Eternal security. Okay. So this is the... The, the Dutch, the, the canons of Dort, they responded with these five doctrines and they said what Arminius and his followers were teaching is wrong and they basically said you can't teach that anymore in the Netherlands. So the entire country of the Netherlands affirmed this and they said you can't teach that anymore. And eventually they, they allowed more religious freedom and, and, and some people begin to, to teach it again. But they said, this is what we believe that the Bible teaches on these issues of salvation. Now, let's, we're, tonight we're talking about the, the I here, uh, irresistible grace. And, and to me, this is, the reason why I want to really start here is because from our experience, this is how we know salvation. This is experientially how we come into salvation. This is the road that we all walk. And uh, I know Jim Briggs covered already total depravity. This was uh, before Christmas. So I know that's a, a while back. So I wanted to do a, a little review of this because it's so important to understanding irresistible grace. So if you're taking notes, the first category that I want you to write down is total depravity, the state of man. And this is, this is so important because if you don't understand this, then you don't understand why grace is so necessary. Total depravity, the state of man. And I want you to turn to Romans chapter five, verse 12. One of the doctrines that is so important to understand is the doctrine of original sin. And the doctrine of original sin, let me write this down for you. The doctrine of original sin refers to Adam's sin, but not just Adam's sin, because the Bible presents Adam as a federal head, as a representative of all of mankind, that in Adam is each of us. So when Adam sinned, we all received the same curse. When Adam sinned, we all sinned in him. When Adam sinned, we all deserve death. That's why, that's why little babies die sometimes. 
because every single person is under the curse of original sin. Universal in Adam. Universal. And if you deny that, as many in this country have done, many of this country have, many throughout the history of the church have done, you are on the road to departing from, from a biblical view of salvation. And, and, and you, your church, your institution is in danger. Original sin is uh, affirming it helps you to understand the gospel. If you deny original sin, then you also have to deny the imputation of Christ's righteousness. How are you saved? Because, because God credits Christ's righteousness as yours. How does original sin work? Adam's sin is your sin. So you don't like that? You also don't get the positive side, the righteousness of Christ. You see what I'm saying? Look, look at Romans 5. I'm not making this up. It's right here. Romans 5.12. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. All sinned in the sense that they, we were in Adam. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Now look at this. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Look, none of us was perfect. None of us was there. None of, you know, Adam uh, was different from us, and, and we're gonna see this, in that he was not under the reign of sin. Adam's conscience was uh, completely undefiled, yet he sinned. And as our representative, he plunged us all into sin. If you look at, the second part of verse 14, he said, Adam was a type of the one who is to come. Christ comes as a new representative. Christ comes as, as someone who, who succeeds where Adam fails. And that's, that's the comparison, verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, that's us, everybody, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So there's the connection. Christ is a new Adam that comes to reverse what the original Adam failed to do. But the doctrine of original sin is this, that we are all fallen in Adam. What are the effects of that on mankind? The effects of that very early on, this is Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Write that verse down. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh, the Lord, regretted that he had made men on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So Moses says that the effects were is that the intentions of the mind, of the heart, the affections became evil continually. If you turn over to the book of Romans, Romans chapter three, some of you might still be there because you didn't go back to Genesis. Romans three, verse 10. Paul says, none is righteous, 
No, not one. No one understands. Look at this. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So what Paul is saying is, look, look at verse 11. No one understands. He's saying that the mind, because we're fallen in Adam, doesn't understand the things of God. The mind does not understand. Look at the next phrase in verse 11. No one seeks for God. What he's saying is that the affections are broken. You don't desire the things of God. You don't seek after the good news. No. Verse 12, all have turned aside. They've all turned aside from the way of righteousness. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So therefore, what is the picture that the New Testament gives of man? What is the picture that we are presented of man? Well, it's not a pretty picture. Let me, let me describe to you how man is presented. First, man is said to be a slave to sin. Turn over to Romans chapter 6, verse 20. Romans 6, verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So Paul says that before coming to Christ, we are losses of sin, slaves of sin. Uh, a slave does the bidding of its master. And that was your relationship to your sin, that your sin reigned over you and made you do its will. So that's the first picture. Man is a slave to sin. Second picture, man is in the flesh, not the spirit. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Now look at verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Look, indeed it cannot. Do y'all see that stark reality there? That if you are in the flesh, does Paul say that you're in a state of neutrality? He says your mind is hostile to God. That means that you hate God. You hate the way of righteousness. You reject it outright. You don't want anything to do with it. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if you're in the flesh, your mind is hostile to God. So that's second. So first was that you are a slave to sin. Second, that you are in the flesh. Third is that you are spiritually blind, that you are spiritually blind 
blind. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So the unbeliever, he says, in their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is, who is the image of God. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. Paul says, talking about the unbeliever, they are darkened in, the, in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So they're darkened in their understanding. They don't have a visible vision of truth. Jot down this verse. I'm not going to have you turn there. And, and we're going to revisit this verse later. But Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3.3, 3, he says, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Let me restate that. Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What's the implication of what he's saying? You're spiritually blind. You can't even see what I'm talking about because you have a heart problem. You are blind in the heart. So man is... A slave, man is in the flesh, man is spiritually blind, and man is spiritually dead. Look over at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were necros, dead, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So Paul says we were spiritually dead. Dead. What does a dead person contribute to their salvation? Not one thing. Not one thing. I used to think of evangelism like this. Evangelism is like a, you know, a sinking cruise liner. Hopefully not in Arctic waters like the Titanic. But a sinking cruise liner, you can imagine there's a lot of people out in the water wanting to be rescued. And that salvation is simply coming along, maybe you're in a bigger boat, and you're throwing out, you're throwing out the, uh, the life preserver. That's the word I was looking for. You're throwing out the life preservers. You're throwing out the, the, uh, the ring tied to the rope. And you're saying, grab on. 
grab on, grab a hold. That, that's what I used to think. And when I was a young man, 17, 18 years old, and I, and I really began to, to read this stuff and study this stuff, I realized, no, no, that's not the right picture. We're talking about dead bodies in the water. And you're throwing out the ring. You're throwing out the ring. And it's just floating corpses. Ezekiel said it was like that. Remember God brought Ezekiel? And he said, Ezekiel, come into this valley and you start prophesying. He's like, what are you, what are you, what are you talking about? All I see are these this bones of this ancient army. And God says, no, you start prophesying and watch, what's ha- watch what happens. And he starts prophesying. And what does God do? He resurrects the army. He puts flesh on those bones. And he makes those bones live. Erwin Lutzer, you ever listen to Erwin Lutzer on the radio? Love Erwin Lutzer. Uh, pastored the Moody Church for a number of years. He would sometimes teach a preaching class at the Moody Bible Institute. And he would take his students to a graveyard, to a cemetery in Chicago. And he would say, start preaching. What are we doing? Nobody Nobody can hear what we're saying. Yeah, preach. Preach. Call them to the gospel. You know, this is crazy. What, why, why are we doing this? And he explained to the students, because I want to give you a picture of what you're dealing with spiritually. This is the state of man's soul. Man is not in a neutral position. Man is spiritually dead. And what is required then, when you understand this, and this is why this was so transformative to me, now while you're seeing it, what is necessary then, this is where we're going, is that divine spark of grace in their heart to open their eyes so that they can see and understand the gospel. And so when I'm presenting the gospel, when I'm preaching, I'm praying, I'm saying, Lord, I know I'm preaching to corpses, Obviously, the, the, the Christian is born again, and the Christian is spiritually alive. But if somebody is a non-Christian, they're a walking dead man. And I'm asking and pleading with God that he would do a divine miracle in their heart and open their eyes to the truth and give them new life so that they would believe. So the question comes up all the time. You know, I get this as a pastor all the time. You know, so what is then the situation with our free will? What is the situation with what God holds us responsible for? Well, this is the reality. This is the reality. If we are spiritually dead, if we are spiritually blind, if we are in the flesh, hostile to God, and we are slaves of sin, that seems like a really odd way to describe, quote, free will, doesn't it? And Jonathan Edwards has been really helpful to me here. Edwards says it's better to refer to it as libertarian freedom in, in the sense that we are all held responsible by God for our actions. We're all held responsible by God for our actions. 
But the, rea- but the reality is, is that if the mind is enslaved to sin, if the affections, the heart, is enslaved to sin, and the will is simply the choosing of the mind, and this is, this is Edwards' language, that's what the will is, right? The will is your action. You're choosing to do what you think you want to do. Then your will is actually in bondage to sin. So what this means is, is that yes, you have the natural ability to repent and believe. You can logically do that, but you do not have the spiritual ability to do so because you are a slave to sin. You do not have the spiritual capacity outside of grace to repent and believe the gospel. That is the meaning of original sin and therefore the necessity of irresistible grace because 100% of the time, this person will resist the grace of God. 100% of the time. So now we come to irresistible grace. So the first header that I gave you was total depravity, the state of man. Now we come to the necessity of irresistible grace. The necessity of irresistible grace. Earlier I talked about how people all the time resist grace. But at a certain point, God can overcome their resistance. I want you to turn to John chapter six. John chapter six, and I want you to see this. Jesus believed in irresistible grace, and he taught irresistible grace. John chapter six, you know this, we studied this, it's the bread of life discourse. And and let's start in verse 40. Jesus says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Basic gospel message, right? Basic gospel. You believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. Verse 41, look at the response. The Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from, from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? They knew that it was a claim to deity. And Jesus' response is this. He says, the reason why you don't believe is because you're depraved. He says, the reason why you don't believe is because you're in sin. Look at what he says. Do not grumble among yourselves. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Wow. So you're saying, Jesus, that I can't come to you unless 
your father draws me? Yeah, that's why you're in a state of unbelief. You're grumbling, you won't believe. He says, because my father is not drawing you. Uh, This word, draw, very important word. It's a Greek word, hell, kuo. And if you want to, there's the kind of alliterated version. Okay. Hell, kuo. And what this word is used to describe is a bucket in a well. A bucket in a well. So you go to the well, you lower the bucket, and then what do you do? You get the rope and you draw it up. You pull it up, the little lever system pulls up the bucket full of water, right? Jesus says that's salvation. That's salvation. That what God does is he draws you to Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and you're just like that bucket in the well. Now let me ask you a question. What does the bucket do? What does the bucket contribute to its being drawn up? Nothing. Nothing. It's the work of God, Jesus says. You say, wow, that's pretty stark. Are you sure that's what he means? Absolutely. You know why? Because he repeats himself. He repeats himself. Look at verse 65. John 6, 65. Well, actually, let me back up to the preceding verse, verse 64. He says, there are some of you who do not believe. So even Jesus presenting the gospel, they still do not believe. And then he says, verse 65, he reiterates it. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. No one can come unless my Father who sent me draws him. Now, let me explain how this works. Let me explain how God does this. I want you to start a new heading called the effectual call of God. So first was total depravity. Second, the necessity of irresistible grace. Third is the effectual call of God. In the New Testament, really in all of Scripture, there's two types of callings, two types. First is what's called the general call. Second, 
is what's called the effectual call. The general call refers to the broad preaching of the gospel. It refers to the message of the gospel, the good news going forth all over the world. It refers to the preaching of the prophets, of the apostles, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and every evangelist and pastor that has preached the true gospel for the past 2,000 years. That is the general call. And it's called general because it means it goes out generally to everybody. Come one, come all. All, everyone on the highways and the byways, come in. That is the, the general call of God. And this call is given through preachers or evangelists. Are you sitting down with a friend at a Starbucks and walking them through a track? That is the general call. Let me give you some examples in Scripture. This is Mark 1.14. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Mark 16.16 Jesus says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And Jesus says in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.5, do the work of an evangelist. And really a great example of this, Jesus says in Matthew twenty two forty four, he says, many are called, but few are chosen. And by calling there, he's talking about just the proclamation of the gospel, that many hear the proclamation of the gospel, but he says few are chosen. So that's the general call. Now the effectual call accompanies the general call. The effectual call is God the Holy Spirit working through the preaching of the gospel. And the effectual call is is the, and, and this is my definition, the saving call on the soul from the Holy Spirit that brings about saving faith through the word of God. Let me say that again. The effectual call is the saving call on the soul from the Holy Spirit that brings about saving faith through the Word of God. Do you remember, I don't know if maybe some people can recall the exact moment that they believed the gospel and repented of their sins. Other people, they don't really remember that. But I've, I talk to a lot of people and they say, you know, it was almost like a light switch went off in my head. It was just such a vibrant experience of trusting Christ in faith. I felt the Lord was just drawing me. It was like I couldn't, you know, it was like kind of like a homing beacon on a spaceship. It was just, I couldn't get away from it. That's how God was pursuing me. And one, you know, Spurgeon used to refer to this as the hound of heaven, that the hound of heaven tracks people down. And it's like, I don't, I don't want to become a, ah, now I believe I, I, wow. Um, that's the effectual call. Let me give you some references here. Romans 1.7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called 
to be his saints. Let me give you another example. This, this is an important uh, reference. I, I actually looked at it this morning. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30. This is called the golden chain of salvation that Paul lays out. And the group of people, this is the important thing to, to understand, is the same from beginning to end. That's the, the those in verse 29 are the same those who are glorified in verse 30. So verse 29 says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this specific call is unique for the believer. It's the calling on the heart that leads to salvation. Uh, turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of of the calling to which you have been called. He explains this a little bit more in verse four. He says there is one body and one spirit, and this calling is the work of the Holy Spirit. He says just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. This is a very specific call that the Holy Spirit does for the believer that he imparts this hope. Turn to... 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. So who does this call? He says, God does this call. This is, this is not the general call of the evangelist. This is the call of God. God saved us. God called us to a holy calling. He says, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. Now, a couple more references here. I want you to turn over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 9, 1 Peter 2, 9. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this is, God's call, God calling you out of darkness into the light. If you look down at verse 21, same chapter, Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 
And there's more references that I could give you of this specific heart call. But I want to show you a place where you see both the general call and the effectual call. Turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. This is the conversion of Lydia right outside Philippi. Acts chapter 16. Look at verse 14. Really fascinating. One who heard us. There's the general call. So one who heard the preaching of Paul was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Now look at this. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's the effectual call. So you have the, the general call, first part of the verse. You have the, the effectual call, the second part of the verse. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention of what was being said by Paul. So here's the connection I want you to, to make sure you understand. The, the general call, is it necessary for the effectual call to take place? Yes, it is. Does God use evangelist? Yes, he does. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 that I, do, that I become all things to all people that I might win some. God uses us. So we need to be persuasive. We need to, to preach the gospel to everyone that we possibly can. We need to evangelize everyone we possibly can. Because God uses the word of God. God uses the message of the gospel to save. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. So it's the gospel message. It's the general call that God uses. But salvation will not happen unless God also provides that, that effectual call through the proclamation of the word. So let me give you a quote. This is a, a Puritan, Samuel Rutherford. This is marvelous quote. He says, God rides upon the, upon the white horse of the gospel and shoots the arrow of the irresistible word of God into the hearts of God's elect so that they must obey and become the Lord's prisoners, his conquered, ransomed, and bought ones by virtue of the Father's decree. So the, the effectual call always will accompany, when it comes, the word of God. Will always accompany, when it comes, the word of God. Now, here's what the effectual call does. Here's what the effectual call does. So I want to make this as, as practical and as experiential as I can. The effectual call produces in your soul what is called the new birth. Regeneration. So you hear the word, God the Holy Spirit calls, and the effect of that is the new birth. And we call this the new birth from John chapter 3, right? Where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born, and the word for new is the Greek word anothen. And that, that word can either mean new 
or it can mean from above. It has a double meaning. It's actually both, isn't it? It's a birth from above and it's a new birth. But that's where when we talk about the quote new birth, that's the textual evidence for it is John chapter 3. In other places in Scripture, it's referred to in various ways. Sometimes it's, it's, it's referred to as new life, new life in Christ. Um, let me, let, let's look at John 3 just real quick. Turn to, to John 3. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, verse 3. Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anothen, born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus says to him, and, and this, I believe, is a reference to Ezekiel and Jeremiah in the prophecies of the New Covenant. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that's cleansing, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So what he's saying is God the Holy Spirit has to work the effectual call in your heart to bring about the new birth for you to enter the kingdom of God. That's what God has to do. And Nicodemus is like, I don't understand that. Because that means that it's completely up to God. That means that we can't manipulate the results. That means that we can't plan the evangelism rally and say, well, we can guarantee that there's going to be 100 people that come to know Christ, or 1,000 people, or however many there are. We have no idea. You can't manipulate this. Look what Jesus says. It's, I, I've just marveled at this. This is just... This, this, this is... Um, Sobering, humbling. Verse six, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. You can't do it. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then look what Jesus says. This is what salvation is like. He says the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. The other day I was sitting on my porch and I saw all these leaves just being blown on the street, just coming along. And, and, and I was just thinking, where did that wind gust come from? You know, wind is a mystery. And it has to do even with the earth's rotation around the sun and the moon's rotation around the earth. It, it's, it's a mystery to us. And Jesus says, so it is with those who are born of the Spirit. It's a mystery. Why did you respond and your sibling didn't? Why were you there at the evangelism event when, other, when your friends were not? Why, why were you born into that family and other people were not? Why are you here tonight and other people are not? Why did you find the gospel persuasive and other people did not? The Spirit blows where he wills. And you, like the wind, do not, where he, do not know where he goes and where he comes from but so it is with those who are born of the Spirit. And this is a, uh, when, when you are born again, you are given new sight, and the blinders fall off, and then you can see. That's what Jesus says. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Paul describes this reality 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Just, just keep, stay with me here. I want you to see this. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We, we began here talking about spiritual blindness. But I want you to see how this new birth happens, what God does in the new birth. So 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, he says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now look, he says, we pro what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. We give the general call. We give the general call. We proclaim the gospel. And he says, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. But then look what he says happens. Look what he says happens. As the general call is proclaimed, he says God does a creative work. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So God, he, he's describing creation. God does a creation work in your heart so that you come to a knowledge of the truth. What does that sound like? Well, next chapter, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Uh, the new birth is also described as having a new heart. That's Ezekiel 36. And uh, as a spiritual resurrection, that's John chapter 5. So what happens then when you are born again? You, you see things clearly now for the first time. You understand who Christ is, that he is God, that he is Lord, that he died for your sins. And this is how you respond when you are born again. Automatically, when you are born again, I forgot my marker. You respond with repentance and faith. As a result of being born again, it's kind of like a when you strike a match, you have the friction on the match. And as soon as that match is struck, what happens? You have the flame, right? That's the relationship of the new birth and faith. The, the new birth is the striking of the match, and faith and repentance is the flame that is immediately present. So it happens instantaneously. The moment that you're born again, you believe. But what causes the belief? The fact that you were born again. And that right there is how we come full circle all the way back to Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Yet it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so no one can boast. That's what Paul means when he says it's not your own doing. The faith, yes, you exercise faith. When I believe the gospel as a little kid, I'm believing I'm repenting of my sins. I'm believing. I am trusting in Christ. But it's the new me doing it as a result of the new birth. 
It's the me doing it with an enlightened mind now because my mind has been enlightened by the glory of God in the face of Christ through the new birth. And therefore, it's entirely of grace. It's a divine miracle that I believe because I was once a wretched sinner and now I'm professing faith in Christ. Is there a verse that expressly says this? Yes, there is. 1 John 5, 1. 1 John 5, 1. He says, John says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, present tense. So everyone who believes, present tense, that Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God, perfect tense. In other words, the new birth, the regeneration, perfected, is what produces presently faith. Everyone who believes, present tense, has been born of God in the past. So what does this mean? Let me give you five implications as we close. Five implications. First, every work of salvation is a miracle story. Every work of salvation is truly and completely the grace of God. Second, and this flows from that, we must be in complete dependence on God's spirit to see any spiritual success. Any spiritual success is from him. Third, our job and responsibility is to be faithful in extending the general call of salvation. We must be faithful to do this. Knowing that God will extend the effectual call. Then that ball is in his court. I once heard Tommy Nelson say, I preach the gospel and I go home and eat bluebell ice cream. Something like that. <laughs> because, because if you really believe this, you know that if you are faithful, if you present the gospel to your friend, your family member, if you preach the gospel, we need to preach it, that God will be faithful to save those whom he will. And, and you can't manipulate that. You can't. And, and, and we won't. Fourth, we then have faith that Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. You ever wonder, will Christianity continue into the future? Or will it just die out with our generation? Will it continue in the future? Of course it will. You know why? Because our Lord Jesus Christ at any point can knock another Paul off his horse. At any point, it's irresistible grace. At any point, Christ will save whom he will. He, he will, and this is good news, I think. You know, if, you're, if you have uh, a wayward family member or a friend and you desperately want them to be saved, you know what I'm praying? God, save them. Overcome their resistance. Draw them like that bucket. You bring them. You work the events in their life. You shine the light of the gospel into their heart. You bring their fleshly hostility to nothing. Christ will build his church. And then fifth, 
Fifth, and this is, this is, I think, such a reassurance, is that we can understand that we will never lose our salvation. Because the logic is, is very simple. The logic is very simple. If God begins it, God ends it. See, Arminius said, no, no, no. Man begins it, and man can end it. Nah. He who started the work will be faithful to complete it. Do you see that? That's grace. Grace, grace, greater than all of our sin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth of irresistible grace. Wow. What a gracious God you are that you, for those of us who are in Christ, have overcome our resistance, that you drew us to yourself, that you captivated our hearts, that you gave us this gift of the new birth so that we could see the truth of the gospel and repent of our sins and believe. We thank you for this work in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would do this work in many people, family, and friend, uh, family members and friends and colleagues. We pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to give the general call of the gospel and that we would be praying that you would bring people to yourself, Lord. May we be faithful. May we be an evangelistic church, trusting that you will do this work of effectual calling, that you will call lost sinners to yourself. We ask all this for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.